Lost in Space was always an excellent concept in search of a decent execution. Originally developed by Erwin Allen, Lost in Space made its debut on the CBS television network in 1965, after a rather circuitous route to the television screen. Even before Lost in Space, Erwin Allen had a reputation as a thrifty producer, not afraid to adapt and use leftovers. As such, more than one person felt that Lost in Space, originally entitled Space Family Robinson, was inspired by a comic book of the same name, itself a riff on the Swiss Family Robinson. Allen claimed no knowledge of the comic book before starting production, despite the comic being published since 1962. Nevertheless, a lawsuit from Gold Key, publishers of Space Family Robinson, resulted in the comic being renamed Lost in Space as part of the settlement. Seems a bit weird to me, but whatever. Alan may not have been aware of the comic series, but he was aware of the possibilities of transferring an old idea to TV and the lucrative results it could yield. He had already taken his successful movie Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea to television, keeping costs down, with judicious use of the movie's effects footage, and felt that after the sea, the most logical place to head for a follow-up were the stars. Alan proceeded with his plans, lawsuit be damned, and filmed a 50-minute black-and-white pilot entitled No Place to Hide. Produced as a far more serious show than would ultimately appear on television, No Place to Hide, produced and directed by Alan and co-written by Alan with Shyman Winselberg, would centre around the Robinson family, Father John, Mother Maureen and three children, Judy, Penny and Will, along with John's assistant, Dr Don West. As with the series, the characters were played by Guy Williams, June Lockhart, Marta Christen, Angela Cartwright, Bill Moomey and Mark Goddard respectively, and the plot centred around a NASA plan to colonise an Earth-like planet, Alpha Centauri, beyond our solar system. The Robinsons and West are the first of the planned colonists, although others will follow in other spacecraft later. John and Maureen are established right out of the gate as scientists and equals, a far cry from what Maureen would devolve into for the series proper. Judy has apparently given up a successful career in musical comedy, whilst Will and Penny are prodigies of a scientific nature. One can see immediately who the weak link is. I can't imagine that space colonists are crying out for musical comedy professionals. Don West, here a doctor, not a major, seems to be in a relationship with Judy in that chaste 1950s kind of way. They exchange coquettish glances and hold hands like two 14-year-olds on their first date. The vision of the future is slightly blurry. Everybody wears silver jumpsuits, the computer equipment is very much of the 1950s, as is the central dilemma. Overpopulation was a major concern in the 50s and 60s, and the reason given for the exodus to Alpha Centauri is that Earth is now too crowded. The estimation that as many as 10 million families will make this journey over the next year or so gives some indication of the problem Earth faces. The Robinsons and Dr. West are the first family to make the journey and are to be launched in the Gemini 2 spacecraft on October 16th, 1997, where they will be placed in suspended animation for the 98 years it will take them to travel to their destination. With Earth's population already at crisis point, waiting until 2095 to get all this sorted out seems like an eternity. Upon arrival, they will prepare the planet for the arrival of the other colonists. However, the ship encounters an unmapped asteroid field which damages the ship and knocks it off its planned trajectory, 
forcing the Gemini 2's automated onboard computers to guide the ship to a crash landing on a nearby but unknown planet, rendering the Robinsons hopelessly lost in space. The pilot is impressively mounted, sets are cavernous, and the special effects, for the time, are impressive. The main problem, though, is that for the first ten minutes this forgets it's a TV show. News narration informs us of everything we are seeing, as if this were a radio drama. It's only when the Gemini 2 crashes, a really expensive looking SFX sequence, I'll give them that, that the visuals really kick in. When we next meet the Robinsons, some considerable time has passed. It is now December 3rd, 2001. The Robinsons have cultivated a small community using the ship to provide shelter and finding food and water. Of course, the women are making supper as John and Don go off and do manly stuff like climb mountains and secure science-type equipment. This being an Irwin Allen series, disaster quickly ensues. John learns that the temperature is about to drop precipitously and they encounter, for the first time, humanoid life in the shape of a massive cyclops. There are a number of problems. The chariot, the tank-like vehicle the Robinsons travel the terrain in, looks far too big to fit in the Gemini 2, and one wonders what the hell the Robinsons have been doing for four years to not notice there are massive cyclopean beasts roaming the landscape. The casting of the kids is also curious. Whilst Will and Penny could easily be the progeny of the red-headed Maureen and the darker John, where the hell did the blonde-leggy Judy come from? Has Mrs. Robinson been playing away? Given the nature of the show and the time that it was made, it's not a surprise that it's all a bit safe, considering the situation. If a nice, normal, boring 50s TV family had been launched into space and gone about their lives as normal, this would be the result. Four years doesn't seem to have caused any hardship, and there is even a scene where Maureen has a laundry basket. Presumably there has been a time distillation effect, as the kids haven't grown at all in four years. The Robinsons are just relentlessly nice to each other. There is a little bit of alpha-male rivalry between Don and John, but it doesn't go anywhere because John is always shown to be right. John has a pretty cool jetpack, though. I want a jetpack. With all that being said, there are some good family moments. John and Maureen seem to have a good marriage based on trust and equality. John never orders Maureen around. Judy and Don are in the first blush of young love, and both John and Maureen are accepting that it's going to happen as Judy gets older. Given she's mentioned as being 19, I would suspect she and Don have already passed a few bases. Judy isn't really given a lot to do other than fawn over Don, but it's Don who's the weakest character. He's rather stiff and unappealing in this first adventure, and there is a lot of room for further development. The pilot could also do with some trimming. It's 50 minutes long, about normal for an hour-long show of this vintage, but there's a lot of padding. Numerous shots of John flying across rocky landscapes on his rocket pack, and the chariot driving past rocks, rocks, and for variety, more rocks. The first show spends a lot of time showing the kinds of problems the Robinsons could find themselves in, should the show get a pickup. These seem to involve fighting aliens, Don and John on missions to hostile climbs, the kids wandering off and getting into trouble, and environmental problems. They also find evidence that a human-like race may have been on this planet some years before. Presumably food and shelter would play into the plots as well. This is all pretty good grist for the 1960s mill, a kind of 40 serial but on weekly TV. The influences are clearly Flash Gordon, with the rocket ships, the technology and the weapons all having that space opera vibe. There is an especially good set piece where the chariot must cross a river in a storm, in which the special effects are really impressive. 
This is the most dangerous part of the show, with a real feeling that the characters are in mortal peril. It's quite impressive how the water only barrages them from one direction, though, as if the production couldn't afford two buckets to dunk over the cast. The Robinsons survive this perilous journey and arrive at a more tropical part of the planet, where they are watched by unknown eyes. Overall, No Place to Hide is a pretty good pilot. It's a tad creaky by today's standard, but it's a lot more serious and dramatic than the series that followed. The biggest surprise is the complete absence of Dr. Smith and the robot, arguably the best-remembered characters from the show. The addition of them would be a double-edged sword. Based on this pilot, the series needed something to provide some drama. If all the characters are on the same page, then there's really going to be any conflict. Without Smith, though, the pilot is allowed to give all the other characters a moment to shine. There is undeniably a great concept here that perhaps 60s TV just wasn't capable of handling in any innovative way. Another way that this pilot presentation is more solemn than the series that followed is in the score. This presentation doesn't feature the rousing action-adventure score by John Williams like the series did, rather a more discordant and moody soundtrack that adds to the landscape of the show. The score was a Birded Herman piece, recycled from The Day the Earth Stood Still, Journey to the Centre of the Earth and Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef, and demonstrates what an important part the music plays in setting, tone and feel. No Place to Hide never erred in Lost in Space's original run, but this version that I watched is available on both YouTube and Daily Motion. The lack of those two central main characters proved too difficult to slot it into the show as was, and as such, scenes were carved out of this pilot and utilised in other episodes, whilst a new first episode, The Reluctant Stowaway, was filmed. This pilot did its job, though, in that it sold the series. When audiences met the Robinsons for the first time, it would be on the 15th of September 1965, with the UK erring on the ITV network a scant three weeks later, on the 2nd of October. Written by Shyman Winselberg under the pen name S. Bar David and directed by Tony Leader, the reluctant stowaway opens in exactly the same way as No Place to Hide, but with a slightly different voiceover and a slightly edited opening sequence. The Robinsons are introduced in the same way via voiceover. However, the ship is renamed the Jupiter 2, and there is more attention paid to the ship than the characters, including the robot who, we are told, will be key in the final analysis of the new planet. Despite being under heavy security, we are told that enemy nations would go to any lengths to sabotage this mission. This is a slight difference from the pilot, whereby we were informed all mankind were working together to leave Earth. This decides to take its play from other 50s and 60s drama by featuring a red menace. This menace takes the form of Dr. Zachary Smith, played by Jonathan Harris, billed as a guest star for the entire run of the show. In more new footage, we see Smith fiddle with the robot, reprogramming it to destroy the safeties after eight hours in flight. A soldier catches him in the act, and bumbling, effete and incompetent Dr. Smith kills the guy and flushes him out of the waste disposal. Smith then reports to his bosses that the job is done. The familiar music kicks in as we end the teaser.
music is far jollier than anything heard in No Place to Hide, giving the first episode a much happier tone. Dr. Smith is apparently the man in charge of the Robinson psych evaluation, and he clears all of them for takeoff. New footage also re-envisions Don West as a major and the Jupiter's pilot, although the flirtatious relationship with Judy still exists. There's a bit of a lack of continuity here between this first act and the teaser. Dr. Smith was almost arrested for being in a secure area, but in this sequence, there are loads of personnel just milling around performing final checks. It seems to have made it much easier for Smith to sneak on board and do what he needed to do if there was lots of other people around. This does also allow Smith to do some last-minute sabotage, although, if he needed to do this, why did he report the job done before the opening credits? The plot continues. The Robinsons enter the hypersleep tubes in a mixture of new and old footage that is well integrated, and the launch takes place without a hitch. Only this time, Smith is trapped on the Jupiter 2 with the Robinsons. Harris could be a massive slice of pork, but here he captures Smith's panic and desperation quite well, turning in a sweaty and cowardly performance. The reasons for Smith's betrayal seem to be for no more notable a reason than money. He doesn't seem loyal to a foreign power, he seems motivated purely by greed. Why this may be, what causes this military doctor of long standing to do this, will remain forever unexplored. He does it because the plot calls for it. Unlike No Place to Hide, it's Smith's extra weight that unsettles the Jupiter 2, knocking it off its planned trajectory, and this causes it to run smack dab into the asteroid field. This causes Smith to think only of himself, and he uses a laser pistol to free Major West from his stasis tube and has him take the controls. This Smith is actually a decent addition to the cast, and I suspect his billing as special guest star and his role as an out-and-out -out bad guy meant he was not originally planned to become a series regular. Harris, not willing to lose out on a steady paycheck, softened the character considerably after the first five episodes, to the detriment of the series' overall quality. With the Jupiter 2 way off course, thanks to the extra weight and the asteroid field, West has no choice but to wake the Robinsons and give them the bad news. Smith is a lying, conniving and manipulative jerk here, telling Major West he saved him when the asteroid field smashed his suspension tube, neglecting to mention that he's the whole reason they're in trouble in the first place. To be fair to Don, his first impression of Smith is that he's a weasel, although Smith does help Marie when she suffers from some kind of post-hibernation sickness. I suspect this was more for his own ends, though. A nice scene then follows. Don has to work on the damaged Jupiter 2, and to do the work, he has to turn off the artificial gravity. This was something never seen on space-bound TV sci-fi due to the expense of the special effects. Certainly Star Trek, Space 1999, and Doctor Who Rurley, if ever, did it. But I'll credit again to the effects crew on Lost in Space in that this is really well done. The girls, her, float semi-realistically, and the kids have a lot of fun just goofing around in zero-g. Smith, meanwhile, is shitting himself. It's nearly eight hours since launch. I can't imagine that shitting yourself in zero-g would be very pleasant. Anyway, Will spots the bad doctor screwing with the robot, and Smith convinces Will that he's really ill with a virus. Smith storms off to tell Maureen and John about Will and demand that they return to Earth, but Will sticks the control pack Smith has just taken out of the robot back in. The robot goes batshit crazy and starts trashing the place, which for 1960s TV means sparks. Lots of sparks. The robot attacks everyone, even electrocuting Smith, but it moves so slowly I fail to see how he really poses a threat. It is like that issue of Spider-Man where he fought the living brain. Oddly, despite getting a few good hits off, the robot doesn't outright kill anyone, which I suppose follows his programming. 
he was supposed to do this when everyone was in suspended animation. So maybe he's not got an outright kill command. Don pulls out the power pack and they seal the damage, but the robot has knocked the Jupiter 2 even further off course, meaning they are, once again, hopelessly lost in space. The episode closes with an extended teaser for next week's episode. John has to go outside and spacewalk around the Jupiter 2 to fix the scanner that will hopefully get them moving again. Surprisingly, compared to the ultra-capable guy in No Place to Hide, he's quite shit at spacewalking, which makes for a nice change of pace. We're so used to the captains of the ship being good at everything, it's a pleasant distraction to see that they all have assigned tasks, and this simply isn't one of John's jobs. Don should be the one doing this, but he's considered a special commodity as the only man who can fly the Jupiter. John, in fact, is so bad at this, he trips, snaps his cable and floats off into space. John won't let Don go after him because then the whole family's doomed and Dr. Smith bottles it, which means that Maureen has to step up. Such a nice change to see Maureen do something like this, rather than make Coco and do the laundry. The episode closes on a cliffhanger as Maureen tries to get to John to save him. This is definitely an episode of Lost in Space as we all remember it. John Williams' score is present and correct. The robot, voiced by Dick Tufeld, is accounted for. And never fear, Dr. Smith, albeit not the irritating buffoon of later shows, is here. Whilst it's true No Place to Hide needed an antagonistic presence, Smith does tend to dominate proceedings even at this early stage. Still, the reluctant stowaway is a fine piece of genre TV and does ensure the viewers will be back next week. However, it wasn't quite as good as the original presentation. No Place to Hide, despite lurching from one disaster movie scenario to another like a kid learning how to roller skate, had real stakes and a feeling that the show was going to be about survival and family, whereas this feels like an action-adventure show. There's nothing wrong with that, and it led to a three-season run of variable quality, but I guess I just enjoyed the tone of the original more. Granted, that probably wouldn't have been as big a success with regular viewers. Lost in Space ran for three seasons and was a surprise cancellation in 1968. So surprising, in fact, that all the cast thought they were coming back for another year and script had been ordered. Few of the cast were upset with the sudden cancellation, though. Whilst Kristen, Harris, Cartwright and Mumi all enjoyed the steady paycheck, Guy Williams, June Lockhart and Mark Goddard had grown increasingly tired of the direction of the show, feeling it was not what they signed on for and a far cry from where it had begun. Guy Williams was especially perturbed to find himself ostensibly the star of the show, but frequently playing second fiddle to a robot and a slice of ham. June Lockhart walked right into another gig, Dr Janet Craig in Petticoat Junction, and continues to act to this day. Guy Williams retired to Argentina to play golf and spend his Zorro residuals. He passed away in 1989. Mark Goddard and Marta Kristen continued to act, but never appeared in anything with the staying power of Lost in Space. Like Lockhart, Bill Mooney hasn't been out of work since Lost in Space, often showing up in genre shows like The Flash or Babylon 5, whilst Angela Cartwright seems happy to drop by the convention circuit every now and again. Jonathan Harris did more voiceover work as he got older, including the role I know him best for, that of Lucifer the Robot in Battlestar Galactica. He passed away in 2002. But the resonance of Lost in Space as a concept never went away. Numerous revivals were mooted over the years, normally by Bill Mooney. Mooney even went so far as to generate a script until Irwin Allen told him to back off. Mooney did contribute to Innovation Comics' Lost in Space continuance as a writer, but sadly the company went out of business before it could be finished. 
The comic was quite good, and Moomin matured the series somewhat, tackling the issue of sex for the then-teenage castaways, including having Penny develop a crush on Don as the only eligible bachelor available. The big revival came in 1997 with a big-budget film version. The cast included William Hurt as Professor John Robinson, Mimi Rogers as Maureen, Heather Graham as Judy, Lacey Chabert as Penny, Jack Johnson as Will, Gary Oldman as Dr. Zachary Smith, and Matt LeBlanc as Major Don West. Personally, I thought the movie was a bit of a mess, especially in its third act, and the best thing to come out of it was this.
kill a bad guy buys the beer. As a concept, though, Lost in Space refused to go away. Different people over the years have been approached to reimagine it, including Russell T. Davis. Davis mentioned in an interview about how he'd been asked to do it after leaving Doctor Who. He was tempted for a while, being a massive fan of the concept, but decided he wanted to get away from space. A version that did take flight, even before the return of the good Doctor, was John Woo's interpretation of the material. Yes, that John Woo, director of the killer, hard-boiled and face-off. Commissioned for the WB Network in 2003, The Robinsons Lost in Space was written by Buffy writer and producer Doug Petra and starred Brad Johnson as John Robinson, Jane Brooke, now best known as Admiral Cornwell in Star Trek Discovery as Maureen, Mike Irwin as Don West, Adrienne Palicki, familiar from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Orville and John Wick as Judy, and Ryan Magarini as Will. Oddly, this version has a newly born Penny Robinson, and another brother was added in her stead, David Robinson, played by Gil McKinney, who was Sam and Dean's grandfather, Henry Winchester, on Supernatural, and Prince Eric in Once Upon a Time. Like No Place to Hide, Dr. Smith is conspicuous in his absence, but at least this time there's a robot. This pilot has recently been uploaded to YouTube in five parts, and is available for viewing for the first time since its filming, as this also never erred. Lost in Space seems to have a thing about filming pilots that never err. It isn't the best of picture qualities, but it is perfectly watchable. And what do you want for free? Opening at the John Robinson Retirement Dinner in the year 2097, John has been honoured for being a hero of the recent Earth invasion, some 15 years after the fact. This Robinson clan aren't as close as the 60s show. John was away fighting, and the kids are army brats, having a complicated relationship with their dad due to their constant moving around. They are the first family to be headed to the planet Nova to colonise. What's the bet that they're going to end up hopelessly lost in space? The big surprise in this opening is how baby-faced Adrian Palicki is. Judy still has the hots for Don West, who is the youngest pilot to ever graduate as a pilot, and in true WB fashion looks about 12, far too young to have achieved what he's supposed to have achieved. The other surprise is that at least Judy looks like she could be a product of her parents here, although her impressive breast size must have come from her father's side of the family. Judy is a slightly naughty girl, sneaking out to go back to a party to chat up Don, and in a far cry from the chaste relationship between Don and Judy in the 60s show, Judy spends the night with Don, although she doesn't want to tell him her surname. Will has built a robot to protect him from the bullies at school, so we get a danger, Will Robinson! Will wants to take the robot with them, but Marine and John don't think that's a good idea. Put your hands up if you think this, this setup will have a good payoff before the end of the show. The parents are having second thoughts generally about even leaving, realising that they haven't given their kids any stability at all for the last 15 years. The ages of the kids aren't established here, but David looks to be about 19, Judy about 17, and Will about 13. There's a lot of stum and drang about whether this would be good for the kids and some teenage rebellion, but at least this family do seem to genuinely like each other, unlike most dysfunctional families on television. Judy seems to be going through some shit with her mum, but they do have a moment together where they at least try to understand each other. John tries to reconnect with Will and David, although he clearly doesn't know them very well. It's David and John where the daddy issues come in, having a fractious relationship, because, hey, no US genre show of the 2000s is complete without daddy issues. Sadly, the first half of the show is devoted to conversations about showing your emotions, and John has to have lessons from Maureen and how to tell his kids he's proud of them. I never get this. My granddad is part of the greatest generation, and he never had a problem telling us how proud of us he was. Likewise, I've never had an issue saying it to my kids. 
Maybe it's just me, but a pilot episode should begin with a bang, and all this touchy-feely stuff is far too slow to kick off the series. The special effects are provided by Zoic, who performed the same function on Firefly and Battlestar Galactica, and are pretty good where they are completed. It was decided not to go ahead with the series before a final FX pass, but that doesn't really detract too much from the show. We're all savvy enough nowadays in the art of filmmaking to know when a green screen should have been something else. The feel of the special effects is more 2001 than space opera, with lingering shots of slow-moving ships in orbit. Nothing too boring, though, and all scene-setting more than anything. After about 22 minutes of this tawdry melodrama, the show finally gets underway. The captain of the host vessel for all the Jupiter craft calls John to the bridge, telling them that they seem to be having problems. John informs them that their problem is alien-related. It looks like the war is back on. John takes command and orders everyone to a Jupiter pod as the host vehicle is attacked. Without armament, there would be a sitting duck, so it's time to abandon ship. It's quite the coincidence that this was shot the same year Battlestar Galactica came back, as Galactica essentially rewrote the language of TV science fiction, making it far more cinema verite and moving us away from the sweeping scores of John Williams and the panoramic shots of Starship seen in 2001 and Star Trek. Lost in Space is so close to getting this vibe as well, and given the development time, I can only assume this was being developed at the same time as Galactica. However, Galactica is better suited to a war scenario revamp, and the basic premise of the original Galactica lent itself to a 21st century do-over. The original Lost in Space, despite starting in a semi-gloomy place of overpopulated Earth, was essentially a positive show about exploration and family values. This doesn't seem to want to tear down the family like Galactica did, but it does seem to be struggling to find its feet and determining exactly what it does want to be. Anyway, the ship has its hull blown out, and David and Will find themselves being blown out into space, but David manages to save his little brother in a tense, well-orchestrated scene. You have to ignore that the wire removal effects weren't finished, though. The aliens board the ship and the cast are split up, but everybody's determined to make it to Maureen, which they do after some alien fighting. It's all very exciting, but I don't know that it's true to Lost in Space. Anyway, the Robinsons and Dom make it to the Jupiter too, except Will, who's been grabbed by aliens. John goes all Rambo on their ass, blowing them away left and right to rescue his son, which he does just in the nick of time. However, stupid David snuck off after Will and John and is trapped as the Jupiter 2 launches. It's left open-ended as to if David is dead or taken by aliens, but given that he wasn't part of the original cast, either he is dead or they were setting him up to come back later. Had there been a later. Don manages to get the Jupiter away and out of the debris field as the main ship explodes, but they are pursued by alien fighters. Will turns on his robot, there you go, give yourself that handshake, and manages to give the Jupiter some extra juice, and they fly right into a wormhole or black hole or swirly effect thing. The Robinsons and Major West emerge on the other side and are, say it with me, hopelessly lost in space. The John Woo pilot is a curious amalgam of the original show, the basic premise, space above and beyond, the concept of a world war fought in space, and Battlestar Galactica, the quest to find their way back to Earth. And this wasn't a successful pilot. Had it not been lost in space, it may have been a fun show in its own right, but when you attach yourself to an already existing IP, you bring with it expectations, and this didn't feel like a lost in space story. The rebooted Battlestar Galactica was very different from its 70s forebear, but it was still Galactica. 
the resurrected Doctor Who was still Doctor Who, albeit with a glossy new coat of paint. This was trying very hard to not be lost in space, and that seemed quite odd. Acting throughout was variable. Brad Johnson was as stiff as anybody named Brad normally is, but Jane Brooke was quite good. Adrian Palicki was okay, though still a little green, and Mike Irwin was a mini John, complete with splinters. Gil McKinney was fine as David, and Ryan Margarini doesn't really get a lot to do as Will, other than look wide-eyed and save the day. Dr. Smith is again oddly absent. Most of these issues were solved this year when Lost in Space returned to our screens as a ten-part Netflix series. The Netflix show begins with the Robinsons getting lost. Well, kind of, with a bunch of other colonists and fighting to survive on a foreign planet. The entire series is basically a pilot for Lost in Space, as it's only at the end that the Robinsons are truly lost, oddly in exactly the same way as happens in the John Woo pilot. The cast on the new show, though, is uniformly excellent. Molly Parker is a stronger, more intelligent Marine Robinson, and John, played by Toby Stevens, is a military man like in the John Woo version, but estranged from his family. Stevens does a good job with the role, showing a man trying to be conciliatory to his wife and eldest daughter, Judy, played by Taylor Russell. Perhaps as a nod to the old show, Judy looks nothing like Maureen and John, being a person of colour, and this is explained as a prior relationship Maureen had, but Judy considers her dad to be John. The other kids, Penny, played by Mina Sundwall, and Will, played by Maxwell Jenkins, are pretty good. Jenkins sells talking to a robot all of the time, and Sundwall steals every scene she's in as a snarky but lovable Penny. Penny and Will don't seem to have the broken relationship with their father that Judy does, and they're cast well in that these two do look like they are a product of a union between those two actors. Dr. Smith is Parker Posey, kind of, and there are lovely nods to the old show and the actors throughout. Don West, played by Ignacio Saracchio, I think, is also more interesting, cast as a mercenary pilot looking out for himself, but not in a bad way. He will help the survivors if he can, he just wants to make some money out of it. He has a lovely relationship with Judy as she essentially becomes his Jiminy Cricket. A number of critics have attacked it for its feminist agenda, which I can only assume to mean they don't like seeing women doing more than cooking dinner and folding laundry, because the show establishes very early on that the mission to colonise will only allow the best and the brightest, and people who can offer something. Judy is a trainee doctor in this version, rather than a much-needed musical theatre actor, and a marine is a mechanical engineer. Will clearly follows in her footsteps and also has a gift for mechanics. They will still need cooks and laundry folders, I'm sure, but they're just as easily unisex jobs, and maybe they have a rotor. Penny is the only one in the family who is not a scientist, but she must have been smart enough to have passed the tests in the first place to get on the mission. I was pleasantly surprised by the new Lost in Space. It was reverential enough in the places that it needed to be, but modern enough in other places. This Dr. Smith is a creepy, manipulative bastard, and this is well played by Posey. You want to punch her whenever she's on screen, a mark of a good bad guy. Even the score homage the old show, although the actual credit to a more Star Trek Enterprise. I can't show you them, so pop along to YouTube and have a look at them, but you can have a listen to the new theme.
in space was always a great concept in search of a good execution. After the original series went off course, the film misfired, the comics were cancelled, and a new TV pilot not even picked up, it seems like Netflix have finally got the mix right. The new version isn't perfect. There are a number of science issues that even I spotted, such as water not freezing from the bottom up, for example. But we can say that science on the planet is out of whack due to its proximity to a black hole. This would pretty much solve all of your problems. In the areas that matter, though, story, character and emotional involvement, Lost in Space was, I felt, a real winner. This time around, it was clearly influenced by J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies, with copious amounts of lens flow, and the Canadian filming location convinced no one that they were on a far-off planet. But I give them credit for having a planet that had different weather patterns and days and nights, depending on where they were. The action was comfortably balanced between the kids and the adults, and no one was made to seem really stupid to further a plot point. Penny and Will were occasionally naive, but not really stupid. There were also issues with the writing, which could have been clearer in places, with characters not explaining something because it was more dramatic not to. But overall, it was a nice surprise. Hopefully, it will be successful enough to get a second season. Hello, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... Or, this is a job for Superman. Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots, transform! How about this? By the power of Grayskull! Or maybe... For the honor of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. I'm bringing the show back to talk about all the things I enjoy. Comics, movies, TV shows, video games, and more. New and classic episodes can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com and Charlie'sGeekCast.com, as well as anywhere you get your podcasts. So check out Charlie's GeekCast. You'll enjoy it. Or your money back. Welcome back to the email section of the show. Oliver Villa has emailed in about the Marvel Masterwork issue I did on Amazing Spider-Man issues 193 through 202. Hello, Andy. Hello, Oliver. I enjoyed the retrospective on Amazing Spider-Man 193 through 202 and the Amazing and Spectacular 1979 annuals. I wasn't that much of a fan of the Wolfman era in this series and felt that Len Wein's run had much more fun to it. However, I did enjoy the first four issues of his run only because of Ross Andrews' art. For me, I felt like his art saved those first issues, and then after issue 186, I felt that Keith Pollard's swiping of Ditko and his constant absences on the title ruined the rest of the run for me. I liked them better when they were both on Fantastic Four, and Pollard only missed one issue of his run as artist on that title. In 1980, I was introduced to the Wolfen era of Amazing Spider-Man through a comic three-pack that featured issues 195 through 197. I was around six or seven. I lost those three issues later, only to buy them during various times in 1987, along with issues 193 through 4, 98, 99. What not on issue 199, though? I remember buying issue 199 at a comic book shop at a mall on a rainy Saturday morning, then coming home to see a rerun of A Child in Need from The Incredible Hulk. My favourite moment in that issue was the scene where Peter is frying eggs, and it was that moment that 14-year-old wanted to be like Peter and cook eggs in a frying pan. 
Even today, when I don't want cereal, I don't want to go out for breakfast, frying eggs is still one of the best life moments a person can have. As for 200, in 1985, my mum had a friend whose husband had a collection of Marvel comics, and he had an extra copy of issue 200. It was nice when I found that I could have it and add it to my then small collection. As a 12-year-old in 1985, issue 200 was the greatest Amazing Spider-Man issue ever. Since then, there have been other issues that would have given 200 a run from its money. By the way, Stan Lee scripted the final page epilogue in that issue. I also had issue 201 and 202, but I only liked issue 201, because 202 was a terrible conclusion. You are right about the annuals. They could both be read as standalone stories, as I had read the spectacular annual after reading the amazing annual, only to feel that part two could have been a totally isolated story from part one. I tend to like part one better, as it had that great John Byrne art. Back in 79-80, Byrne could have drawn the entire line of books. It was more impressive that he finished the pencils for issue 206 in three days, because they were desperate to make shipping in three weeks. As far as I know, part two was the first ever Spider-Man story penciled by Rich Buckler, predating his mid-to-late 1980s run on Spectacular Spider-Man with Peter David. Sorry for the long-windedness of the email, but when it comes to Spider-Man comics, I have a lot to say. Keep up the good work, Oliver. Well, thank you, Oliver. I will endeavour to do just that. Chris Franklin has emailed Palace of Green Delights. Hello, Andy. Fun coverage on a great episode of Lois and Clark. It's easy for me to forget how much I loved the first season of Lois and Clark. It debuted shortly after I had left home for university, and since I usually spent my weekends at home, I would return to campus to settle down with one of my favourite heroes on Sunday night. I am one of those who feel Dean Kane never did seem comfortable as Superman, but that was actually a part of his character. It didn't help him in the pantheon of Superman actors, but he was still a great Clark Kent. And let's just say I was one of those totally infatuated with Terry Hatcher and leave it at that. Her weight loss in season two was quite shocking, and I haven't found her as attractive since. As you pointed out, the show suffered quite a bit in later seasons, although there are still some high points. In many ways, Lois and Clark is much like the George Reeves series, since the first season seems more serious and adult, whilst the remainder of the show gets campier and sillier. Still enjoyable, for the most part, though. The Green Green Glow of Home is one of the series' best episodes, and perhaps my favourite kryptonite origin story in all of Superman lore. Well, except for that trip to Addis Ababa, Mr. Luthor. I never thought of Lois and Clark as a proto-CW show, but I can totally see the connection. Good call, and a great episode, Chris. Well, again, thank you very much, Christopher. It was nice to hear from you. Uh, the MCU ranking received a couple of notifications for people. The first person to email in about it was Nathaniel Wayne. Hi, Nathaniel. Good sir, I have quite enjoyed listening to your ranking of the MCU films, even though I'm not sure it would have been possible for you to have been any wronger. <laughs> Do you know, I read that on my phone. I was just flicking through my phone and I saw I'd had an email. And because it's your phone, I only saw that first paragraph. And um, that, that made me laugh. Uh, an inordinate amount. Well, okay, that's an overstatement, but Cap's first film at number one? I'll grant I've got a local friend with that in the top spot, but he's quite mad. While Evans himself is basically unassailable in the title role, everything else in the film ranges from passable to weak. Yes, it's a phenomenal cast, but so many of them aren't given much to do. Howard Stark, the Howling Commandos, get utilised far better in later projects. Peggy, Zola, Bucky, or just look asleep. Tommy Lee Jones was a great choice for the part, but somebody needs to poke him with a stick. I think he keeps daydreaming of his paycheck. My biggest beef is with the villains. Hydra feels like Cobra from the G.I. Joe cartoon. They're terrifying weapons, they're just kinds of guns, and when they're being wielded so ineptly, it doesn't really matter. The Red Skull looks fantastic, but as generic as all hell, and more damningly isn't threatening. 
Apart from the assassination of Tucci's character, possibly the one other highlight of the film for me, Hydra never feels like a threat. There's literally a montage that is them doing nothing but being beaten back. They never appear to have the upper hand, and all the school does is snarl. Sorry, that got a little ranty, but I really don't get what people love about that film. What, what I love about it is it feels like a 60s comic. A lot of that 60s comic stuff wasn't developed as well as it could have been. And I think that's probably why I like it. Because it does, it feels exactly like a 60s comic felt. The ending's a bit rushed. Some of the characters are a bit two-dimensional. Some of the bad guys are just there to be knocked down. Do you know and how many Hydra agents in 60s Captain America comics were there just to be knocked down? And that's what I love about it. It feels like a 60s comic book. Good and bad. That's why I love it. On to your question about why Taika Waititi was allowed free reign whilst Edgar Wright walked. I have a theory. We can't know for sure the precise details, but I suspect it's a matter of timing and comfort. I doubt that Marvel wanted to drastically change what Wright had planned. They probably wanted a tad more say than he was comfortable with, given that he's never really had much producer oversight on his films before. But then, when the film came out, I'd be willing to bet that most of the stuff people praise, such as the action scenes and the clever use of the shrink-growing tech, was probably all stuff that was in Wright's treatment. So by the time Marvel brought on YTTT, the YTTT, <laughs> I cut that up, that wasn't in the email. They had hindsight and probably thought, you know, we should just let Wright do his thing. Then YTT got to be the beneficiary of that shift in thought. Ragnarok did get a bit over-jokey, but I don't mind because with the Russos having worked the more grounded stuff and kept the foundation solid, I'm okay with individuals kind of doing their own thing. I'm also going to disagree with you on the handling of MJ in Spider-Man Homecoming. I think holding back that this was MJ was a very smart move. The simple fact is that the character is such a departure from what most of us think is Mary Jane. If she'd been presented at the start as that, folks like us would have been going, well, that's not Mary Jane at all, the whole time. But this way, the character gets a first shake, a chance for audiences to like her as a character, and then go, oh, by the way, this is our MJ. Maybe some folks still don't make the leap, but I bet you many more of them go with it because they already like her since the walls weren't up earlier on the issue. See, that we don't disagree. My problem was calling her something and then saying it was MJ. I think they should have just not told us her name throughout the entire film. Wouldn't have mattered. And we probably would have gone with it and then only at the end revealed that she's Mary Jane Watson properly, not Michelle that's my problem with it. Only at the end, have her at the end deliver that face it tiger, you just hit the jackpot line, but in that ironic, snarky way that Zendaya has of delivering her lines. And I think she could have totally made it, especially if she'd played that line in relation to joining whatever it is they join at the end, whether it's the maths club or the glee club or whatever the hell it is. I don't even remember at this point. That was my point. Don't call her Michelle earlier on. Just have her be a character all the way through and we get to like her and get to know her exactly like you say. But then at the end, oh yeah, my name's Murray Jane Watson. Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. And we'd have, we'd have gone with it. Or I think we would have. Because I, I think Zendaya is pretty good casting for Murray Jane. I would like her to be a redhead because the persecution of the red-headed people goes on far too deep at this point. But, you know, I think she's good casting. 
Okay, let's get real. My list, I'm going to bullet point the reasons behind this because once I see Infinity War, I'm going to be refreshing this ranking and doing a video on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. 15,000 subscribers and counting, or I suspect it will be by the time you read this on air. Going to more detail on my reasoning, but in terms of the raw rank, here it is at the moment. Number one, Winter Soldier. Number two, Spider-Man Homecoming. Three, Civil War. Four, The Avengers. Five, Black Panther. Six, Guardians of the Galaxy. Two, Seven, Iron Man. Eight, Thor Ragnarok. Nine, Guardians of the Galaxy. Ten, Age of Ultron. Eleven, Doctor Strange. Twelve, Iron Man. Three, Thirteen, Ant-Man. Fourteen, Thor. Fifteen, Incredible Hulk. Sixteen, Captain America, the first Avenger. Coming in at number seventeen, Thor, the Dark World. And at number eighteen, Iron Man 2. As you said, they haven't made a flat-out bad film yet, but the bottom three are ones I don't ever really need to see again, even though they were fine at the time. Solid three-star offerings. Great work, as always. Keep in touch. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you very much, Nathaniel. Very much appreciated. Our next email is from Luke Giaconetti, MCU leaderboard at the Palace, which sounds like a golf tournament. Andy, just wanted to drop you a line about your MCU ranking episodes of the Palace. I sent you a few messages whilst listening, commenting about how I agreed or disagreed with your takes on various entries on the list. Overall, I have to say that I disagreed with a good portion of your choices and rationale, and as such, I thought this episode was excellent. Sorry, it would have been boring as heck to simply listen along and nod knowingly, occasionally eliciting a quiet, yep, in agreement. Blech, who needs it? I'd rather have an intelligent disagreement than simply affirmation any day. As such, I feel that I owe Avengers Age of Ultron a rewatch because it struck me as pointlessly loud, overlong and dumb the first time I watched it. A strong contrast with the brisk and extremely effective original Avengers. Your take on the film and the points you brought up about the subtleties of the film, which I admit, if there were any, I missed on my first viewing, led me to believe I should at least give it another go and be fair about it. The one film that I will have a hard time revisiting, unfortunately, is Guardians of the Galaxy, which I really did not like and have suffered great abuses from other nerds for daring to think such heresy. Not from you, of course, but many others, including colleagues here on the network. Thus, I have not seen Guardians of the Galaxy 2, although your praise of Spider-Man Homecoming has inspired me to move it to near the top of the Netflix queue. Um, see, I think that's a shame. I mean, there's some good-natured ribbing that I have done for people who like Batman vs Superman. And I have been at the, uh, the the brunt of some for liking The Last Jedi. My problem only comes when people who I normally like say stuff like, oh, you're not smart enough to understand Batman versus Superman. That's why you don't like it. It's like, piss off. And the other one, my other favourite one, you, if you like The Last Jedi, you're not a Star Wars fan. Really. And what is my criteria for being a Star Wars fan then? Because, you know, I was probably doing it before you were born. It just shows my age more than anything, but whatever. Like what you like, don't like what you don't like. doesn't really matter at the end of it, does it? If your big concern in life, at the end of everything, is a film, then you've got a pretty cushy life. Aside, you ask about what the possible reason could Edgar Wright have for leaving Ant-Man. What I have heard, and personally speculated, was that if it was a mandate to include the scene with Scott tangling with the Falcon... If true, I would agree with this, as that scene unfortunately grinds what had been up to that point an enjoyably tight romp. But that's just speculation, and my opinion. But without that, we don't have that great scene in Civil War where he calls him Tic Tac and brings him into the fight at the, the airport. So I kind of think if that one scene was the sticking point, that's a little bit petty. Because if they're letting you do whatever the hell you want with the rest of the movie but that one scene causes you to walk away, then you were possibly right to walk away. Because I know from interviews with other people, it's always a compromise playing in other people's sandbox. And at the end of the day, it's one scene that doesn't really impact on the plot that much. 
So I kind of hope there's a little bit more to it than that. Otherwise, Edgar goes down in my estimation a little bit. So all this said, what is my list? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what my list is. Only that we, meaning in this sense the wider audience of the show and you as the host, can continue to have intelligent conversation about these fantastic and escapist trifles which we all love so much. Because at the end of the day, whether one ranks Iron Man above Winter Soldier or below Avengers or whatnot, what really matters is the MCU has helped usher in an era of comic book nerd nirvana. And we should all just consider that every once in a while. Yeah, again, it's something I have mentioned here before, but if you look at look at the 80s, what did we have in the 1980s? Superman 2 at the beginning of the decade and Batman at the end of the decade. And that's pretty much it for film. You know, Superman 3 and 4, I can defend and will, but let's be brutally honest about their quality as films. And then on TV, what did we have in the 80s that was superhero comic? I mean, Erwolf is a stealth comic book show. Um, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm struggling to think of any of that kind of escapist, superheroic type show in the 80s. Everything was action-adventure. There's the great historian hero. And that's pretty much it, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying that stuff like the 18 wasn't comic book, but it wasn't based upon or derived from a comic book. So we really, we only had action-adventure escapism in the 80s and other than like i said superman 2 at the beginning of the decade and batman at the end of the decade that was pretty much it until the 1990s and we finally got you know the flash on tv and that version of the human target that bilson and demio did and then lois and clark so it, was, it wasn't as bereft in the 90s oh there was misfits of science in the 80s wasn't there which was x-men by any other name um i'm thinking that's it so yeah, I mean, to complain about what we're getting now seems very churlish um, when you compare it to what we were growing up with. As I've said before, you keep recording, I'll keep listening. Sincerely, Luke. Well, thank you very much, Luke, for that. Very much appreciated. And finally, Chris is back. Chris Franklin's back with the Palace of Universal Marvels. Hello, Andy. Having watched Infinity War, which delivered for me on all possible fronts the night before, today was a perfect day to journey with you through the MCU. I didn't agree with all your rankings, but why should I? It's your list of favourites. Personally, I'd put Iron Man 3 at the bottom due to that unfortunate Mandarin twist. Sounds like some kind of orange drink. But that's honestly more because it really angered my son, who grew up on the DVD, who grew up on the DVD set of the 90s Iron Man cartoon where Mr. Ten Rings was the big bad. Of course, he was also green, but, you know. When you get toward the top of your list, we pretty much sync up. I think, you know, Captain America The First Avenger is still my favourite MCU film, and one of my favourite films, period, for all the reasons you mentioned. No other film, not even The Avengers, which I loved, has given me that childlike feeling Cap The First Avenger did. I wanted to grab a trash can lid and run across the theatre parking lot, leaping over cars as I walked out of my first viewing. Glorious stuff. As an American, I have to say Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange voice has never bothered me. I accept it as a somewhat haute New England-type voice. Having heard you, and particularly Stephen Lacey, rail against it on Fantastic Cast, I paid special attention while watching Infinity War. Still works, so mileage may indeed vary by region. Great episode, and I would never have guessed it was unscripted unless you told me. You, sir, are a master of your craft, Chris. No, Chris, I think it's just um, I'm a master at bullshitting, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think... 
I mean, obviously, I recorded that episode before I've seen Infinity War. I didn't think that um, Cumberbatch's accent in Infinity War was bad. Maybe, I don't know why. I mean, he was surrounded by Robert Downey Jr. Tom Holland is also doing an American accent, let's not forget. You know, he's also British, so... And his accent has never particularly bugged me. I don't know what it is. I don't know why Cumberbatch's accent just doesn't sit well with me. But Tom Holland sounds fine. I'd Like I say, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is... Maybe it is, you know, because I know him. But that doesn't make sense because I know Tom Holland's a British actor as well. And it was the same with um, Apollo in Battlestar Galactica. Um, I can't even remember the actor's name at this point. I can see his face. But he he's British. I'd seen him in other stuff. But I always totally bought his American accent. So I'd, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Strange. And Hugh Laurie especially. Hugh Laurie just sounds wrong with an American accent. I'm sorry. I caught Stuart Little on TV, I think it may have been in the gym or over Christmas, whatever, and um, he's talking to Gina Davis with an American accent, and I'm just like, what? But again, you know, like I say, loads to loads of people, he's Gregory House, so what do I know? Anyway, thank you all of you people for emailing in, I appreciate that you didn't agree with me, but still had fun, and you know, that's what I'm all about, I'm all, I never want to go and piss all over somebody's cornflakes, I'm not about saying what you think is good, I think is bad, you know, if you like it, you like it. That's the end of the day. And ultimately, what does my opinion matter to you, really? If you like something and vice versa, it shouldn't matter, you know? Um, the Palace of Glittering Delight is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Pop on over there and buy shit through Amazon. And we get the kickback that keeps the lights on, as Belinda Carlisle once said. And uh, I will be back next time with something. I know not what. Again got a book i may just pick something at random or we'll just see what i feel like be good to yourself and everything's gonna be okay